Thank you, Daniel and Virginia. We're going to do something a little special today in that uh, we're going to ask several of you to lead in prayer here in our service. And to find out if you're going to be leading in prayer, would you check your chair to see if there's a piece of tape around the bottom of the leg? And uh, if so, oh, I forgot to put the tape on this morning. Nuts! Well, there was a lot of prayer going up just then. Please, God. (laughs) Not my chair, Lord. There's something about being asked to lead in prayer in a public meeting that makes us nervous, doesn't it? We need to get beyond that point so that we understand as we pray, we're talking to God, and it doesn't make any difference if the people listening like what we say or don't like what we say. We're not talking to them. We're talking to the Lord. But there is something about leading in prayer in public that makes all of us stop and think, do I really want to do this? Not so with Jesus. Conversation with God was very natural to him. And it was so beautiful that his disciples said on one occasion, Lord, teach us to pray like that. And so he gave them a model prayer, which we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, but in fact is the disciples' prayer. It's what we're to pray. It's the pattern we're to follow. But Jesus does pray in John chapter 17 in such a way as that we can call this chapter the Lord's Prayer. I invite you to turn there with me to our text, John chapter 17. This is holy ground. Here we have the Son of God praying to the Father before the cross, and yet he speaks as though the cross were behind him. The one who is speaking here in John 17 is the same as the Word whom John introduced in chapter 1. John told us there of the glory of the Word before the world was even created. He went on to explain in verse 14 of that chapter that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, John says, in His ministry, in His life. Then as we saw last week, the glory of Christ is seen in His crucifixion. His hour came and he said, Father, glorify your Son, your name. And the Father spoke from heaven and said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And now as we come to chapter 17, hours before the cross, Jesus is praying as though he were already back in heaven. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. 
Where are these words spoken? Have you ever wondered that? Where did Jesus offer this prayer? Chapter 14 concludes with him and the disciples getting up from the upper room and leaving from there. Chapter 18 begins by saying that they then crossed over the brook Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane. So chapters 15, 16, and 17 occurred somewhere as they walked toward the Garden of Gethsemane. It is my conjecture, and it's purely that, that they stopped in the temple area. If you look at a map in the back of your Bible and trace the route, you will see that the path from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane would likely have taken them through the temple area. I believe it was there, in the presence of priests and the altars and the sacrifices of that Passover season, that Jesus stopped and offered this prayer to God. You say, well, how does Christmas relate to all of this? Listen, without the truth of Christmas, that God became man, there would be no Savior. And there would be no priest, no high priest, who could stand before God and pray like Jesus prayed in this chapter. In this last of the series of the Christmas season that we've entitled The Glory of Christmas, we see the glory of Christ's session. Now we need to think about the meaning of that word, session. We use it sometimes today when we speak of the legislature being in session. You know what time that is, of course. That's the time you need to get your hand on your wallet when the legislature is in session. What it means is that they, the legislators, are at work. And they are there doing what they're supposed to do. I guess. And then we talk about courts being in session. And what do we mean by that? We mean that the judge is in the courtroom and he's there doing what a judge is supposed to do. So when we speak about the session of Jesus Christ, we are saying that Jesus is in heaven doing what a high priest is supposed to do. And the glory of Christmas directly relates to that. Because if he hadn't come as a man, he could not be before God praying for men today. And so we close this series by talking about the glory of Christ's session. His glory is revealed in his current ministry as high priest on behalf of his people. How is this so? Well, we observe his glory, first of all, in the position he occupies. And then again in the petitions he offers. And finally in the perfections he owns. First consider with me the position that Christ occupies. His glory cannot be surpassed for he has the highest place that God can give. Where is that place? Well turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be using Hebrews as a corresponding book this morning. And in chapter 1 and verse 3, about the middle of the verse, it says, After he had provided purification for sins, the Son, Christ Jesus, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Notice three facts about the position that Christ occupies. First of all, it's in heaven. Literally, the language says here, the high places. Jesus ascended from the earth, was taken out of the sight of his disciples in the Mount of Olives by clouds. And he entered into heaven. We have an eyewitness that he arrived safely, Stephen. Not long after Jesus was taken into heaven, saw him there and said so. The writer of Hebrews says that we have a priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. In other words, he has passed through the atmospheric heavens and the starry heavens and now has entered into the abode of God, the highest place, the heaven of heavens. And that's where he is today, but we know a little bit more than that. For the verse says, secondly, that he's at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The majesty is a name for God. He's at the right hand of God. The right hand is the place the sovereign gives to the one that he gives power to. And so God the Father invited his Son now to sit at his right hand in the place of supreme authority. There is no throne higher than his. And the third fact that we see is that he is sitting there. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father. That is a position of rest because his work is finished. Notice the writer says, after he had finished the purification of sins, he sat down. That, of course, is in contrast to the high priest of Israel under the order of Aaron. God provided in the temple for certain pieces of furniture, a table, an altar, a lampstand. But one thing God did not provide for in the temple was a chair. The high priest could never sit down on his job because he was never finished. When one sacrifice was finished, it was time to offer another sacrifice because all of these were atoning sacrifices, not the ultimate propitiation for sin. And so he offered sacrifices over and over and over again and was never finished. But Jesus, once and for all, offered himself for our sins as the sacrifice of all time and is now set down his work for sins, finished. My friend, that is the position that Christ occupies. And so Paul writes to the Philippians, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And to the Ephesians he wrote, He who descended, talking about Christ coming at Christmas in the Incarnation, He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so today the whole cosmos is filled with his presence, with his blessings, and he is in absolute charge of it all. 
we see the glory of Jesus Christ in the position that he occupies. Not only as the Son of God, which he eternally is, but as glorified man now. As glorified man, he is in the highest position. Secondly, we see his glory in the, position, the petitions that he offers. Turn back to the Gospel of John, to the 17th chapter. <clears throat> and notice with me here the petitions that Jesus specifically asks of the Father. These are glorious. They reveal to us his glory as the God-man. Two of his position, petitions are offered for himself and four are offered for his followers. And by the way, notice that his followers includes the ones then, as he says in verse 8, they knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me, I pray for them. So he's praying for those who have followed him in his earthly ministry. But... Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, what Jesus prays for in this chapter, he prays for you. Because you have come to believe through the words of the apostles as recorded in God's holy book, the Bible. Now, what is it that Jesus prays for? Well, as I said, two things. He prays for himself. In verse 1, he prays for the exaltation of himself. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Is this wrong for him to pray to be glorified? Not at all. He is the righteous Son of God, and he is praying, Father, exalt me. Is God going to deny that petition? No. Notice his second request. It relates to this, verse 5. It is for the resumption of his eternal glory. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. began. And so now he prays, not only will he be glorified with the Father, but he will be able to resume the glory that he had before he came. In fact, before the world was even created. And today, he has resumed that glory as the God-man. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and he has resumed the glory which the eternal Son has always had with his Father. God has answered the prayers of Jesus. Now let's look at the four petitions that he offers for us. The first one is found in verses 11 and 15, and it is for protection. This implies that we're going to have opposition in the world. For example, in verse 11 he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That's Judas. The context here seems to suggest that the pressure from the world is going to be to try to cut off our relationship with God. And if the world could do that today, it would. But Jesus says, I'm praying that you will protect them, Father. He is praying for the preservation of that relationship that we have with the Father. Now again, he mentions protection in verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, Satan. You see, the world is in the hands of Satan. By the world, I'm talking about the system that controls the world. Satan organizes it. He energizes it. He directs it toward his intended goals. Now, in the end, he can only do that within the boundaries that God has established. But nonetheless, he is the force. He is the force that holds together the world system. And the one characteristic that describes it is Antichrist. Anything that is of God, anything that claims to be Christian, is attacked by the world. And so Jesus prays that we might be protected. Does that mean that the devil can never uh, do anything to us, or we don't have to be cautious of him? Not at all. Does that mean that the world can't trip us up, that we don't have an enemy in the world? Not at all. They are still enemies. But ultimately, the world nor the devil can ever sever our relationship from God. It's permanent. Jesus has prayed this. Will God not answer the prayer of his son? Father, keep them. The Father is going to keep us. The second petition we see for us is found in verse 17 where he simply says, Sanctify them by the truth. <clears throat> Thy word is truth. Sanctify. What does that mean? Well, in the most basic sense, it means set them apart. Notice that Jesus goes on to say, As you sent me into the world, and I've sent them into the world, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So here's a word that's used several times. Jesus says, Father, I set myself apart to the work that you gave me when you sent me into the world. Now, Father, set those people who believe in me apart from the world for the work that I leave them to do. That's what he's praying for. Father, set them apart so that they may go back to the world out of which they've been called to deliver the message. That's what he's praying for. And every time that you witness to someone, every time that you share your faith, every time you hand out a tract to somebody, you are doing that in answer to what Jesus prayed. 
For he says, Father, set them apart for that work that I leave behind for them to do. The third request for us is found in verses 21 to 23. It is a prayer for the identification of his own as one. He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory which you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying that his own will identify together. I do not believe that Jesus is primarily praying here for the ecclesiastical ecumenism of all people who call themselves Christians. Primarily, I believe that Jesus is praying for spiritual oneness of his people. That's the kind of oneness that he has with the Father. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Father fulfilled this prayer and continues to fulfill it every time someone believes and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. For at that moment, each one is placed into the body of Jesus Christ and is made one spiritually. But I also want to say this, that there is a place for a visible expression of oneness with others who are Christians. That is, who name Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm not talking about apostates or false teachers under the guise of Christianity. But I'm talking about those who truly love and know our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a time when we can join hands together with the blessing of God, and we should, in the face of the opposition of the world. Jesus prays for that. And he prays that that oneness of believers will be visible enough so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. And then, in verse 24, Jesus prays for the glorification of his own. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory of you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus prays that every one of his own will one day be with him in glory and be able to see with his own eyes his glory as the exalted Son of God. That's going to require our own glorification. We shall be like him for we shall see him as he is, writes John in his first epistle. Is God going to deny these requests of his son? No. God is going to fulfill every one of them. This gives us an idea of how Jesus is praying for us today. Do you see the glory in it? He begins by saying, Father, glorify your son. He concludes by saying, Father, these who believe on me, I want them with me there to see my glory. And so we have the glory of Christ's session. 
his high priestly work and the petitions that he bears and offers before God. But thirdly and finally, I want us to look at the perfections that he owns. For here again we see the glory of his session as high priest. And to do this, we need to go back to Hebrews, the second chapter. Verse 10 says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Consider with me the perfections that he owns as our high priest. First of all, the perfections in his preparation for this work. To become the author of our salvation and the high priest on our behalf in service to God, he had to be completely identified with humanity by becoming one of us. And so verse 14 states exactly that. Because we are of flesh and blood, he too partook of flesh and blood, the Christmas story. The verb tense here points to one act in time when he became human as well as God. Verse 17 says that he had to be made like his brothers in every way. It was a necessity. It was a moral obligation for him to become authentically, genuinely man. God spared nothing. He saw to every detail so that nothing could disqualify his son in the, the role of Savior and High Priest. Perfectly prepared by becoming man to do what he is doing. But notice, secondly, the perfections of his character for doing this. He suffered as a man so that he could know from his own experience the pain that is caused by human sin. Now, he was not a sinner. He did not sin. But he experienced the pain of sin all of his life. Notice verse 10 says, that God made the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. You say, I thought he was already perfect as the Son of God. Yes, he was and is. 
But there is another element that as the author of our salvation, as our high priest, he needed to be equipped to understand what we pass through on this earth. And so in his service to God now, in his session, he is perfect in his character. He understands the loneliness. He understands the power of temptation. He knows thoroughly the weakness of our humanity. And notice that it says that he is a merciful and faithful high priest. <clears throat> he is sympathetic. Sympathetic. He can understand exactly what we face. He knows it. My wife and I have laughed about this thing a number of times as I stood by her in labor. And she was bearing a child. And I was able to say to her, I know just how you feel. <coughs> what a joke. For I have no idea. I've never done that. Jesus can stand beside you, whatever you're passing through, and he can say, I know how you feel, and he means it. Every kind of temptation that you could ever face, he's faced. And he's sympathetic. And he's faithful. He's unfailing. He's always there when you need him. He has every quality that is so necessary for his work as high priest. We see this symbolized in the Old Testament in the adornment of Aaron, the high priest. In Exodus 28, we have a description of his outfit, his garments as a high priest. One of them was an ephod, a robe-like thing that fit over the front and back. It was held together by straps across his shoulders and on each strap was an onyx stone. And on those stones there were written the twelve names of the tribes of Israel, six on each one. In addition to that, the high priest wore on the outside of this ephod another piece that was called the breastplate across his chest. It was made out of fine gold. And inset in the gold plate were twelve precious stones, each unique. And on each wand, an artist engraved the name of one of the tribes of Israel. So that whenever the high priest went into the presence of God, he bore there the names of the children of Israel. One set on his shoulders one set across his chest. What does this represent? Across his chest, over his heart, the names of the sons of Israel. Sympathy. Mercy. On his shoulders, the place of strength. The names of the sons of Israel. Faithfulness. Mercy. And Jesus Christ, in his high priestly work before God today, is perfect in his character. He is sympathetic and he is faithful 
always bearing up before God our names in prayer. We must note the perfection of his work in the past. That's the third perfection that he owns. It says that he made atonement for the sins of the people. That's not a very good translation, in my opinion, in the NIV. He made propitiation. He offered the final sacrifice for sin. It wasn't merely a covering for sin. It was a sacrifice that dealt thoroughly with sin. And then there is the perfection of his work in the present. Fourthly, verse 18 points to it. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Notice that he was tempted. Jesus was tempted in every category of sin that you could ever face yourself. And he was tempted far beyond what any of us have experienced. He was tempted. But notice that we are being tempted. We're still here in the world. And we're passing through temptation. And it says that he is perfect in his present ministry. He's able to help. He runs when he's called for. He comes to the aid of those who are passing through temptation. And verse 16 says it, that he helps the descendants of Abraham. The word helps there means to seize, to take hold of, to rescue. We have a great high priest who is perfect in his work in the present as well as his work in the past. The glories of Christ in his session. <clears throat> the perfections that he owns. My friend, with a high priest like this, we must beware of ever taking our salvation lightly. We must never trifle with it. We must never treat our faith as though it is superfluous to life. We should not play with it as though it were some toy. Our faith is serious. And we must beware of allowing sin to ever harden our hearts so that we turn away from the living God. That's what the writer of Hebrews warns us about. We must take sin seriously because of the priest who stands in heaven on our behalf. And how good it is to know when we fail. He's there faithfully and sympathetically as our advocate before the Father. Because we have this high priest in glory, we must press on to maturity. It is time to put away our childish faith. It is time to get on with growing in it. It is time to be mature. We have no excuse for remaining childlike and childish, rather, in our faith. It is time to grow up and be mature children of God. Because we have one who stands before God on our behalf and prays that we might grow and mature and no longer be tossed and thrown about like waves of the sea. Because we have one who is a high priest in glory like this, we can be assured 
that he's able to help in the time of need. Let that be an encouragement to you. I don't know what your time of need may be. Perhaps it's today. Perhaps it's a job that's threatened. Maybe it's some uncertainty in your health or in your family. As you look at 1993, you don't know what it holds. Let me tell you, Jesus does. You say, he's the, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's already in 93. He's already praying about those things you're going to face next month. He's already there preparing so that he will be fully able to meet your needs when you come to that day or that crisis or that moment of the, that hour of need. Be encouraged as you face the new year. A year ago, we did not know what this year would hold. And many of us have come to days and hours in the last 12 months that we would never have dreamed would have come to us. And Jesus was faithful. He was there and he met our needs. And he will be there tomorrow. And he will be there the next day. Why? Because he is faithful. Rejoice today in the glory of Christ's session for you, my friend. Because of Christmas, because he came as man and partook of our flesh and blood, he today as glorified man is standing before the Father on your behalf praying. Be encouraged and march on. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your Son, Your Son who is glorious in the position that He occupies, the petitions that He offers, the perfections that He owns. We worship You through Him. We thank You that we can call Him our friend, our brother, that He understands what it means to walk as a human being in this world. That He stands before You with perfect knowledge of each of us and knows our battles. Thank you. Friend, would you at this moment just tell him thank you for yourself and reconfirm yourself to walk with him, to trust him, to be faithful because of his present ministry on your behalf. Amen. Amen. Would you take your hymnal, please, and turn with me? <clears throat> We're going to sing a verse of 435. It says, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's stand together and sing the second verse of 435.
Now let's bow together. Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? This precious Savior is still your refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Father, we thank you that as we leave this place and begin to enter a new year in a few days, that we do so with our hand in yours, and we do so with a high priest who knows our situation in this world and who is interceding faithfully and sympathetically before you and your throne. We are encouraged by that. And we go from here with fresh strength because of this truth. As Wesley said, our souls arise and shake off their guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in our behalf appears. Before your throne our surety stands. Our names are written in his hands. And we say, praise the Lord. Amen.